and welcome to the Essential Property Podcast with your hosts, Paul Samuda and Amanda Woodward. With 45 years of combined experience in the world of property buying, selling, investing and developing, they are here to share with you their knowledge in the Stoke-on-Trent, Newcastle-under-Lyme and Crew property market. Let's get started. Welcome to episode six of the Essential Property Podcast, where we discuss all things property-related within Stoke-on-Trent, Crewe, and the Newcastle and Lyme areas of the country. The podcast is directed at landlords, investors, agents, or anyone new to the area and thinking of investing in residential or commercial real estate. My name is Paul Samuda, and I'm pleased to have with me soon Alex Jonas, our Finance for Property Developers, a Stoke-based finance broker providing services for investors and developers nationally. So, Alex, perhaps you can give me a brief introduction into your background and how you've gone into the world of property finance. Yeah, sure. My background is in finance. I started originally with ABN Amro Bank, an arm of ABN Amro Bank anyway, in 2000, looking at asset finance in particular and worked my way up through the corporate world. At the same time as doing that, we also started investing in Stoke-on-Trent. I started with buy-to-lets and did it the old-fashioned way of saving up to make a deposit to buy our first buy-to-let. And then um, learned through experience that there were other ways of doing it and increasing your portfolio. When I left Asset Finance, I tried something new in the corporate world, didn't like it, and joined a a different brokerage and started through their training program in 2007 and quickly gravitated towards the property market. But what I found was they they offered every kind of finance available, be it retail finance or any kind of finance that anybody, any business might need. And I decided to branch off on my own and niche into property finance and development finance. And along the way, Alex came along and joined me and brought into line his marketing experience and IT experience. And he's been learning along the way as well and does a lot of the vital and commercial mortgages side of the business. Okay. My first main question, and I've asked all the previous speakers this in some shape or form, is why do you think the market has boomed for residential property in, in particular. What's your thoughts? I know that you're more on the commercial side, but I know conversations you would have had with, with colleagues about the state of the property market and the mm. mortgage projects out there. Any any thoughts on that? Well, I think there's several things driving that, to be honest with you. I think the government, with the pandemic, obviously the government is stimulating the market because consumer confidence is very directly linked with the housing market. So if we start to lose that confidence, people stop spending. And if they stop spending, then the whole economy starts to suffer. And I think by bringing in this temporary removal of the SDLT has done a number of things. We've got a pent-up demand in the residential side because we haven't been building the properties, the housing that we've needed for so many years. So we have a number of people still wanting to get onto the property ladder. We also have people who have been locked up with COVID, having to work from home, having to homeschool, realising that their gardens are not big enough or the garden shed to work in or their 
their third bedroom or whatever it is that they've been trying to, to make everything happen. And what's happened is that people are now saying, well, if we have got some stability of employment, which again is being supported by the government with the job retention schemes, people are now saying, well, this is probably the best time to be moving. And because house prices are increasing, we've also got people who have perhaps bought housing at the wrong time historically and have been in negative equity. And only recently have started to see their house prices come to the level where they're not in negative equity anymore. And of course, with the removal of SDLT, it means they can they can attract people at the right price to buy their house and get themselves out of that negative equity. And so position. just for our listeners, just explain the definition of SDLT. So that's stamp duty line tax. So whenever you buy a property over um, £125,000, you have to pay stamp duty land tax to the government. And the government have said any house or any property under £500,000, they don't have to pay stamp duty land tax. So if you take that to the maximum opportunity, that could be a saving of £15,000, for example. And I think even if you're, I mean, certainly in the Stoke Stoke and Trent area crew and roundabouts, there are limited properties at half a million pounds. But I think psychologically, Anything that the government is 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 giving away or, or reducing, you know, people get excited and they're all in, you know, from a psychological standpoint. So, I mean, that's that's on the on the residential side. Obviously, most of our listeners are are landlords, investors, and, and developers. How's that impacted? Do you think on on that side of things? I mean, I was in where was I? I was in Mansfield and Torquay in the last couple of weeks with some investors. And they were looking for anything from bifolets to HMOs. And they were flying off the shelf a few weeks prior to that. I was in Stoke with some other investors. You know, first-time buyers are, are, are certainly driving it. What's your experience of the effect of this booming market for investors and, and landlords and developers? So, like I said previously, you know, the, the residential market's been booming. People have been locked up in the houses. But what you've also got is the lenders coming back and offering uh, 95% mortgages. They're back in, in play again. So people can afford the, the next house up, the, the, the larger house. And, of course, that's having an effect on the buy-to-let market. So people are looking more and more towards how they can still play in the property market. And if they're not being able to make the numbers work on buy-to-let, they're looking at where they can make housing into um, HROs, whether they be small uh, HROs or whether they're going to convert to commercial. Um, And I think because the house pricing itself is increasing, it's meaning the house prices are increasing for the um, investors who want to move into HROs as well, if they're just converting standard residential stock. And the demand is just outstripping supply at the moment, so the house pricing is, is going up. And if you remember, of course, it's not so long ago that um, they were saying to us that we were expecting a house correction in the market. And we've not seen that because of the demand with the SDLT holiday that the government have granted, 95% mortgages coming back into play. Yeah. You know, we're, we're seeing the house price correction just being put further and further back. And who knows, will that still happen? And, and, you, and you mentioned you know, the, the that word house price correction. For landlords and investors going forward, I mean, should they be holding back 
from buying now or should they be riding the wave and buying anyway on the expectation that things are going to keep on growing? Any thoughts on that? It's a hard one, isn't it? Because if we do get a price correction, then the time to buy is not now because you're going to potentially be seeing your property values decrease. How long that would last for is another thing. The government's really keen on making the housing market continue. I think most every market they can stimulate, they, they want to, and just to keep the economy going. But I think you've got to sort of play that in mind. When you're looking at, as an investor, you've got to ride the rough and the smooth. So you've got to say, well, what happens if house pricing decreased by 5%? What, what effect would that have on me? Can I still afford it? Would I still be interested in this property or in this yield? And if the answer is yes, then take it. Because really, most people who are long-term investors are in it for the long-term, not for the short-term. And it will come back over time. It's making sure you can ride it out over that time period, really. Yeah, sure. And and just flipping this on, it says, obviously, we have a, a booming residential market. The commercial market might be a little bit different in terms of mm-hmm. commercial real estate, retail, offices. What What's the talk in the market of that? What, what, what are lenders view on the commercial side of things um, are they holding back are they are they lending are they upbeat are they sort of sitting on their hands all of the above so um until recently commercials just been something that people have been shying away from they've been lending but then when you put deals through to them it's either in the wrong location or it's the wrong this or wrong that lending has been very suppressed in ltvs whereas in I think really in the last few months, things have been coming back into play now. So you will typically see they're still lending up to 65% LTV on the commercial, true commercial properties. Most of them are shying away from anything to do with retail because um, just the uncertainty of what's going to happen. Everybody's moved to getting things online. We've seen companies, retail companies going bump. We've seen them taking large and long holidays. Of course, that's affecting the landlords. And of course, that's making it difficult for the landlords to sell those properties as well, because who wants to buy them? So unless you've got something where you can prove the model, the business model, whether it be converting from retail to maybe office and you can prove the demand for the office, then yeah, you can still get the finance for it. It's just a limited number of people who will be lending on it. And it will be 60, 65% LTV in the main. If you've got a strong lease covenant with a strong covenant tenant, then you still can get slightly higher than that. But really, they are far and few between. It's really more about what we can convert them into and prove the demand there. And anything that converts to residential, then that tends to get the the go-ahead. And should, Alex, we have any input on on this, investors coming in and wanting to buy small retail with residential on top, are you getting those over the line with lenders or are they resisting things like that? I think it's all about just using the right lender. There are uh, semi-commercial options out there available. Lenders are still lending on those types of properties. There was a little hesitant at first when COVID hit, but... uh, yeah, I don't think there's too much of an issue on semi-commercial properties at the moment. I think commercial was hit harder. True commercial properties was hit harder. But yeah, it's all about the right type of property. And obviously, 
putting that with the right type of lender who's got appetite for that particular property within that area. Okay. I always hear because of the rise and rise of the internet and retail sort of taking a bit of a backseat, I always hear that the thing to invest in is, is warehousing. What's the sentiment uh, with regard to warehousing from lenders? Again, it's down to location. It's down to the business plan for it. So if you've got warehousing in a high demand logistical area, then yeah, or if you've got a manufacturing base which needs the warehousing, as long as you can prove the demand for that property or if you've got somebody ready to sign up for it or a sitting tenant, then yeah, that's absolutely fine. You can get the finance available for it. I think coming back to the semi-commercial that you were talking about with Alex there, it's if a lender is not very keen on whatever the commercial element is, they often will look and say, well, does this deal stack just looking at the residential side of it? And if it does, then that's what they'll base their calculations on. So if they have, say, a hairdresser in the semi-commercial part and the you know it's on a short-term lease and you know that they obviously haven't been able to open, then they'll just look at the residential element of it. And if it still stacks, they'll lend on it. I'm presuming that well, even though you know the, resi- the the hairdresser may be in situ and paying their rent on time, doesn't intend to leave anytime soon, they won't take that into account when it comes to working out the um, commercial value, presumably. Again, it's down to lender specifics, so some of them may take a view on that. It depends who's valuing it as well. It always comes down on commercial, well, on, even on residential, to value or comment. And if a valuer comments anything that's negative, then they'll tend to say, you know, we'll, we'll we'll take a view on the commercial element. Whereas if the valuer doesn't mention anything at all and talks about the rent for the hairdressers, for example, then it'll be included in the in the valuation okay. and therefore in the mortgage. Good. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot now. In your opinion, what makes a good broker? What should a investor slash landlord look for if they're shopping around for good brokers? I think I would probably look at, as an investor myself, what would I expect? And I think for me, it's about somebody who understands what I'm trying to do in the long term, because it's very easy to tie people up into finance, which perhaps is great for that particular property, but isn't taking the longer term view. Yeah. So I would be looking at somebody who's as interested in me as an investor and as a developer, as I would be about what they can actually offer me. I'm also a little bit, I'm probably a little bit old-fashioned. I don't like what the computer says necessarily. So a lot of brokers out there are standard residential mortgage brokers who will tap into the buy-to-let market or tap into the short-term lending market. But actually, I mean, we've we've seen it. We have to do CPD hours and we see a lot of just your typical residential mortgage brokers asking questions which are just so basic, it's unreal. So you really need somebody who understands the market, understands the pitfalls, the challenges you might have. So if you're doing a conversion or a ground-up build, you understand the costs that are going to be associated with that, where the cost overruns might come, how you might get out of the situation. And the lenders, you, you would only introduce the lenders who can be sort of who work with you really so even in the market where in the development market where they tend to be working and meeting with you quite regularly on drawdowns etc 
you still get some of them who won't move outside of their basic parameters. Now, as a broker, you need to know if you think that site is going to have any challenges, and if it is going to have challenges, how are you going? So you need to be mitigating the risk all along the process because even though a broker gets paid at the beginning, I would be looking for a broker who's going to be there to the end and who's going to be standing by you if you need to recut your finance. What's your thoughts on that, Alex? I know you're quite... Exactly. So then you need somebody that's going to stick with you all the way through when things are starting to get challenging. Mm. You aren't always going to get a yes every time. You need to keep. You need somebody that's going to keep on looking for alternative options if there aren't the the obvious options aren't there for you straight away. Just somebody that's going to keep on persevering and find you the finance that you're happy with in the end, essentially. I think a lot of brokers as well tend to sign up for standard pieces of software and you input the people's information and it'll give you the options of what lenders are available. But when we've looked at these pieces of software, none of them give you a whole market analysis. So, you know, we will look at it. And so we don't subscribe to any software. We have our own database of lenders. And we literally pick up the phone and talk to people about the current situation. And if necessary, we'll talk to underwriters to say, look, this doesn't really fit as a standard, whatever it is. But this is where we think it does come through and how we actually think it will be a good proposition for you. And by talking to underwriters and trying to mitigate the risk with them, it means before it gets to their desk, you've actually got somebody to sanction it or to approve it. Well, not approve it, but to agree to it in principle. So that as long as the value or comments come through satisfactorily, then, yeah, you you can get it. So it's somebody who's working with you and who understands the site as well as you to actually get the right solution for you in the end. So I think it's somebody who sort of works outside the box, really, I'm I'm thinking of. Great, great. Good stuff. Thank you. I understand that, you know, because of the growth on the residential side in terms of mortgages and applications and first-time buyers, that might be spilling across in terms of delays on the sort of investment side and the buy-to-let HMO commercial side. How how are you finding that? Are there delays? Is it getting any better? Is it business as usual? So again, that comes back to what type of broker you're using and how they're actually taking that business and where they're placing it so anybody who is a lender who's in the residential space they've seen some very large and lengthy um, delays when you're sitting in the commercial space it's not as bad we have a few lenders who struggle but they tend to struggle with the solicitors more than anything else valuers are all up and running now I think the solicitors are struggling a little bit because they haven't got their paralegal sat next to them and taking workload off them and things like that We've found a lot of them now have come through, haven't they? Most of those delays that we've... There was a transition with them all having to obviously work from home. That causes delays, just being able to get hold of people. There's been a challenge. But some of the smaller lenders have dealt far better than some of your main high street lenders who just couldn't really cope with trying to set up the uh, working from home. So yeah, some of the some of the smaller lenders in this case are performing far better than your high street lenders, which you wouldn't typically uh, expect in this type of uh, situation. Your high street lenders as well are so highly regulated that they have to do things like record all telephone calls. 
So when you've got people working from home and every telephone conversation has to be A, directed to the right person and then has to be recorded and then has to go through the right processes to make sure that they're following the due diligence, it makes it really difficult for them. And those have been the lenders who've also had to do the bounce back loans, the Siebel's loans. And of course, that's just all been added demand and then all the payment holidays for mortgages. So you can imagine all this demand, extra demand coming on and then the restrictions of working from home. It's just been really difficult for them, you know, and they have worked through it and they have managed it. But the more bespoke lenders have been the ones who've tended to rally around and, and respond a lot quicker. Right, right, right. I think sometimes it's easy to forget that, you know, we might be dealing with the buy-to-let arm or the commercial arm, but they're part of a larger banking group who are, you know, financing the sort of normal businesses with the bounce back loan etc etc no that's very good point very good point now i know that we've spoken in the past of working with overseas investors how's that looking i know we've managed to get a couple over the line but they haven't been straightforward what's what what's the lender appetite with regard to overseas lenders the people from hong kong australia they're strong investors in in the, in the uk What's the view at the moment? So the challenge for a lender with anything that's overseas is making sure that it complies with anti-money laundering and for them to get to know their customers. It's part of the regulation they have to satisfy as a lender. So the first thing is, where's, where's the funds come from? So as long as we can prove where the funds have come from, and if they've come from certain countries, then they just instantly say no, and that's it. We have done a deal where... The money actually came from Iraq and we did manage to get it through. I wouldn't say it was the easiest thing we've ever done. (laughs) And it literally cost them a lot of money to get that through. But they were actually part of the company. They were actually brothers within the company that was running um, the investors who were running in, in the UK. And we could actually prove those links. And then we had to get solicitors in Iraq to actually do all of the due diligence for them and sign them off. And they had to be very reputable solicitors in that particular country. Most people don't want to to go through that expense or that time delay. So what we say is, you know, there there are a number of lenders, and we've actually been talking to a few who were considering bringing it more open to this, because there's more and more demand for people who want to work. So people overseas wanting to work with UK investors – as well as overseas investors wanting to come in and do it themselves. The key things are to help a lender is that the overseas investor has either a UK bank account and some UK bankers, some lenders are now looking at allowing them to have an online bank account. So that means they don't even have to come to the UK to sign it up. Yeah. So it's proof of deposit. So where's that, where are the funds coming from? Have they got either a UK residency, and that that doesn't have to be a residential property they live in, but it might be an investment property. So is there some sort of link to property in the UK, or do they have a UK bank account? So those are the three sorts of things that we're keen on finding out. As long as that person doesn't live in one of these countries, such as Iraq and Iran and places like that, then typically you can get them away. It will take longer and the interest rates tend to be higher. And that's because of the risk that the lender sees and the extra workload they've got to go through to keep it within their parameters throughout the the course of the mortgage. 
Okay, good stuff. And in terms of the market generally, the podcast is focused on Stop and Trent, Newcastle, and and crew. In terms of experience, any issues with getting mortgages away, getting deals done locally versus other parts of the country? Are we in step with other parts of the countries in terms of funding deals, or are we a little bit behind or a little bit ahead of the curve? I don't really see a great deal of difference. I think if I was concerned about anything in our local market, it's because there's an awful lot of investors from outside of the area coming in and they're sometimes buying properties that you wouldn't necessarily think would be the best property in the right place to maybe convert to a HMO, for example. And in those cases, you know, it's usually disappointing once the property is being converted to a HMO um, and then they can't find the demand because the demand really doesn't exist in that particular area. So those are the ones that you tend to see fall out of bed. You know, they don't get the right valuation. There's a lot going on in Stoke and there's a lot to come for crew. So, you know, I think, you know, the councils are doing everything to attract employers into the area. We've got the, the railway links coming We've got an awful lot happening with our hospitals and our universities. So you've not just got the employment, you've also got the student market as well. So I think there's a lot going on in this area that keeps it quite buoyant. My only concern might be in the future is that we overheat the market. We have an awful lot of HMOs and we've seen in crew that are starting to bring in Article 4. We've got Article 4 in some of the Newcastle areas. It's just how much of that they'll allow because we have got an quite a few now developers coming in and, and doing new build and it'll be interesting to see what part of the, more, the market that's going to take and if that's going to affect the, um, the smaller investors in the area. Okay, good stuff, all positive. What about bridging? A lot of new investors, you know, go to auction, they want to buy the property for cash and then refinance it down the road or use a little bit of development finance. Any pointers, any view in terms of the bridging or development finance market that you think would be useful for our listeners? Uh, I think bridging is very popular. It's obviously it needs to be used at the right sort of scenario, obviously when timeframes are tight, etc. I think the key thing with bridging is having the right solicitor who's acted on multiple bridging deals before, because as we all know, when legals kick in, uh, all sorts of things can come out of the woodwork and uh, having a solicitor that knows that they have to perform to a strict deadline and get the deal done is key because uh, you don't want to be uh, taking out bridging loans and uh, sitting on them for longer than necessary because obviously it is a more expensive form of finance. So if you can exit out of those deals as quickly as possible, obviously that's beneficial. But yeah, uh, my one one thing to take away from that would be to have a have your solicitor aptly experienced. And definitely, you know, I think a lot. I think bridging's had a really bad reputation in the past, and I'm not sure if it's it's now current because if you think about it, it's a short term solution. That's all it is. It's short term lending that gets you from A to B. Whether that's a time frame for auction or for a distressed sale or whatever it is. You know, it has its place in the market like everything else. It's the same as people say, well, why would you have a two-year fixed or a five-year term mortgage? You know, why mortgages are supposed to be over 20, 25 years? Well, in the buy-to-let market or in the investment market, you know, people need to be 
recycling the cash wherever they can. So you, you've always got to look at what's what finance suits the need at that particular time. And if you have a shortfall or you have a need, so a lot of people at the moment are using bridging because they're wanting to buy multiple properties and they can't do it with the, the finance that they've got at the themselves you know the cash in hand at the time so it, it's using the right tools at the right time really okay okay that's good that's good a positive thumbs up for for, for bridging i've certainly used it you know I, I don't shy away from it you know if i'm if it's needed we use it sure. and, the, and the rates have certainly come down over the recent years as well so you know Whereas it always used to start with a 1% per month, it doesn't anymore. You know, right. you can get finance from sort of 0.6, 0.5, 0.6 a month. Which is really competitive given yeah. the speed in which they can turn things around and the flexibility exactly. that they have. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's good stuff. This may be an easy question, maybe a difficult question, a bit of crystal ball gazing. The direction of interest rates, obviously, base rate is what, 0.1% at the moment. There was talk of it going even lower than that into negative interest rates, but that seems to have not have, not, have, not happened. The, the the PMs, you know, sort of been very, very optimistic about the economy going forward. Should landlords, should investors be fixing now for two, three, five years? Should they be going tracker for a year or so to see whether any better deals come out? Any any thoughts on that for buy-to-lets and HMOs? I don't think it's going to get any better, do you, in the short term? You know, I mean, I don't think we will go to negative. It would take something quite major in, in the market, I think, now to make us go into negative interest. So I think now, if you're going to do it, fix it now, because you've got nothing to lose, have you? Yeah. Whereas I, I can't see them increasing dramatically over the next 12 months or so. So if people do want to do a tracker, then, yeah, it's not going to hurt you for the next, in, in the very short term. But I don't see any any reason not to fix and to know exactly, so you know exactly what you've got and what your payments are going to be over the next two or five years. You know, I think, um, again, fixed interest has a place in your strategy. You know, it, it, it makes you know what your costs are going to be. I think as long as you're not going to be looking at selling that property, because obviously you've got your ERCs, but some lenders are being quite clever now in that they'll give you a five-year fixed with maybe only two or three years ERCs. Okay. okay. You have to pay a little bit more in interest, but again, it gives you that flexibility of knowing, mm, I might need that money in two or three years, or I might need to reinvest it so, or refinance it. So, yeah. It's... And just, just for our listeners again, just define ERCs. Uh, early repayment charges, sorry. So this is where you might take a five-year term. So they are expecting you to pay that money for pay that money over five years. If you want to then sell it after two years, then they won't have made their money back in which they have calculated their returns. So what they do is they charge you an early repayment charge, which kicks in every year. So if you've got a five-year fixed, you will pay an early repayment charge for those five years. If you then go over your five years and you go on to your variable rate, then there's no ELCs. Well, apart typically. from typically there is the odd lender who has a 1% tail, um, which we try to avoid if we can. 
Okay, great. I think that probably wraps up our session today. That was very, very useful information. I think all in all, it's it's broadly positive and very active in Stoke Crew and, and Newcastle. And it sort of watched its space in terms of the economy. If people need to contact you, get some advice, use your services, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, well, we've got a number 0333441212 that they can contact us on, or you can contact us on sue.jonas at financeforpropertydevelopers.co.uk or alex.jonas at financeforpropertydevelopers.co.uk. And spelling of Jonas, J-O-N-A-S. That's right, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that very, very useful information. All interesting stuff. And let's hope that we can only get better going forward and look forward to catching up with you soon. Lovely. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if so, please hit subscribe and share with those who you think would enjoy it too. To get in touch with Paul and Amanda directly, please visit their website, www.essentialpropertyoptions.co.uk for more information. We look forward to sharing with you on the next episode.